So this morning we're moving on to, it says Genesis 10, it means Genesis 11, uh, the tower. And uh, in some ways this is my dream passage. So if you've uh, known me for a little while, you know that my background uh, is in linguistics, uh, the study of language. And my specialism at university was language origins and acquisition. So I could happily bore you uh, for hours uh, talking about languages and their differences and similarities. Some in this room have made the mistake of asking me about languages and uh, (laughs) have ended up being bored uh, for several hours on on the subject. But here we do see the Bible's origins of language. But as we'll see, that's not really what the heart of the passage is about. All I will say as, as we look at it, this is my little bit of boring bit, this does fit with all the evidence that I found in my linguistics degree that actually what we see is a a group of around 50 to 100 root languages uh, that are basically unrelated and have resulted in our 7,000 plus languages today. And our root language is Proto-Indo-European. There you go, that's my boring bit out of the way uh, for this morning. Um, But if it's not about linguistics, what is it about? Well, the answer is pride. Naked human pride. Mankind in this passage is seeking to exalt itself, as we'll see in our first section. Mankind seeks for a name. Let me read to you again verses 1 to 4. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, these events follow the events of the flood. The table of nations last week told us where we are going. It's showing us where mankind got to. But this section is going to show us the how and the why they got to those ends of the earth that we were talking about last week. You see, God told man to fill the earth and subdue it, didn't he? He told it to, um, to Adam and to Eve, but he told it again to Noah in Genesis 9 verse 1, uh, which I think is on the back of your sheets. Uh, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now we already know from the fact that we saw Noah's drunkenness and him cursing his son, that this is not going to be a return to Eden. Even though we have the repeat of that command, this is not going to be as God intended it to be. And now, mankind stubbornly refuses to spread out and fill the earth. Now, whether this is absolutely everybody, we can't be absolutely sure. But certainly the effects of what happened at Babel have repercussions for the whole of humanity. You see, instead of obeying God's command, they pig-headedly refuse to move. It's like mankind sort of stands up and does a chorus of, we shall not, we shall not be moved. That's how grown up, really, they're being. And what do they do while they're staying put? Well, they build a city and a tower. A city and a tower. Now, you might want to think, well, that's innocuous enough, isn't it? You know, there's nothing really wrong with that. We all build cities. Well, not all of us personally, but mankind has built cities and towers all the way through history. Except for, can you guess who the first city builder is, if you have read Genesis before? Genesis 4, verse 17. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. Uh, When he built a city, he called the name of the city after his son, Enoch. The first city builder in the Bible is Cain, the cursed one. 
uh, the one that killed his brother back at the beginning of Genesis. So if you're thinking about this in terms of Genesis, actually cities don't have a great press at this point, because the only city builder that's been mentioned has been Cain. But the problem is not the what, really, it's the why. And we see, really, two kinds of sins happening uh, with Babel. The first one is that they're building a city and a tower to make a name for themselves. To make a name for themselves. And by that, really, it's the idea of wanting to have their own identity rather than the identity that God's given them. They want to make themselves famous for what they are, if you like. They want a name. They want to make their identity in opposition to God, if you like. So they don't want God to give them a name. They want to make a name for themselves. They want to be their own little gods, giving themselves their own name. Really what we're seeing here is a repeat of the fall in the Garden of Eden. Remember, mankind desired God's place and God's power. They didn't want God to be boss over them. They wanted to be their own boss, deciding their own destiny. But this is what the Bible calls sin. Now, it might sound to you that that's just really the spirit of the age, isn't it? You know, choose what you want to be, be the master of your own destiny. That's pretty much what our society tells us to do, isn't it? But it's pretty much the Bible's definition of sin. See, on the surface of things, it doesn't seem like they're doing much wrong, does it, really, in what they're doing? To quote another mantra of our age, you know, live and let live. So what if they want to build a tower? What harm are they doing? Who are they hurting? So what if they don't want to spread out? That's not hurting anybody. You know, you might get, you know, come on, this is 2242 BC. You know, like people say, oh, this is 2018. Um, it wouldn't work, though, would it? Because they wouldn't know it was BC, but there you go. Um, <laughs> but by most of our society's ethical standards that we have, it would be hard to point at Babel, the Tower of Babel, and say what they're doing is wrong. But our society's ethical standards don't put God in the equation at all. If there is a God, he's merely there to affirm us in our own positions and adopt our own moral standards. You see, sin, at its root, at its essence is not about hurting people. It does hurt people often, doesn't it? But it's not at root, that's that's not what it's about, that's not the essence of it. At the root of sin is our relationship with God. It's something that harms our relationship with God. And it's possible to do something that's seemingly harmless and for for it to be a sin. So, for example, if we think something is wrong, it says in the Bible, and we do it, then it's wrong. So if, you've, if you're convinced in your own mind that drinking alcohol is wrong, and you do it, then you're sinning. If you're convinced in your mind that smoking is wrong, and you do it, then you're sinning. Or if you're convinced that eating meat is wrong, and you do it, then you're sinning. It's a bit like our boys, you know, sometimes they try and be a little bit naughty, and uh, they think they're doing something really naughty. We don't really care sometimes what they're... Well, we don't care what they're doing. I get me wrong. <laughs> but, um, you know, they think they're being, you know, criminal masterminds. Um, and really, they're not doing anything wrong. But the fact they're trying to be criminal masterminds and, and trying to get round us means they actually are doing something wrong. Actually, it's their relationship with us that's being harmed there, not the act in and of itself. Now, I'm not saying that there are no acts that are wrong, but what I'm saying is it doesn't necessarily have to hurt anybody other than God for it to be a sin. 
Even things like constructing our own identity without God in the picture. I mean, that's what they're trying to do here, isn't it? This is who I am. This is who we are. I don't care who, what God tells me I am. I'm going to define myself. So it might show itself and you say, well, I'm, I'm not a sinner. I, I'm just, I'm a good person. Or, you know, I'm not going to be defined by anybody else, even God. No, I am what I am. It's interesting, isn't it? That's what the Bible has for God's name. I am what I am. But actually the, man, the, the idea of our age is that's for us. You're to say I am what I am. Whereas in the Bible, that's reserved for God. So even constructing our own identity with God in the picture is that rebellion against God. I know people who've tried to live a moral life and not do anything wrong just to prove to God that they can do it without him. And that's still sin. So the first sort of sin that we see is relational. It's this idea of they, they are just getting a name for themselves and thereby saying they don't want God. But we also see it in the way that they don't want to be dispersed over the face of the earth. See, God didn't tell them not to build a tower, but he did tell them to go and fill the earth. And by not doing that, they're in direct contradiction to what God has said to them and told them to do. They know what they're supposed to do, yet they do their own thing anyway. And sometimes that's how sin shows itself, isn't it? That we, um, our fallen human nature reacts to rules in this way. Instead of submitting to them, we rebel. So again, going back to our, our boys, I won't use them too many times as they grow up, don't worry. But, um, you know, I've told my boys not to switch the lights on and off. And now that's all they want to do. You know, if you leave them by themselves, they're going to, we want to switch the lights on and off. And I'm convinced that probably if I'd not said anything, they'd have got bored with it and, and moved on. But actually the nature of our, ourselves as human beings is that when we're told a rule, we seem to want to rebel against it. it. It seems exciting, even if it's just sticking a light switch. And here they've been told to go. Well, they, they've decided they're not going to go. We're going to stay put. And that's the other side of sin. What the Bible sometimes calls transgression, crossing a line, breaking a law. Our sinful attitude shows itself in sinful behaviour, stubbornly refusing to do what God says. So they refuse to go, they refuse to be scattered uh, on the earth. It's also possible here as well that they want to avoid God's judgment uh, by building this tower. Part of them, uh, part of them not wanting God to tell them what they are is not accepting his judgment when it comes. Commentators down the ages have put this account and the account of the flood together, which fits, doesn't it? Because they're next to each other. If you think about it, the flood covered the world's highest mountains at the time, all the way to the heavens. And now here is man trying to build a tower into the heavens. Is it just possible they think that by building a tower high enough that they could escape another flood? I mean, God has said that he's not going to do it, but we've already seen that they don't like God, they don't trust God. Their materials certainly point in that direction. They use bitumen for mortar. Now, that particular material is abundant in the Shinar uh, plain where they're building. Again, this sort of shows us that this is uh, something that we look at in history. But it's also pretty much the material that Noah waterproofed his ark with as well. So it might be that they're trying to build a sort of waterproof high tower. Just a possibility. Trying to escape God's judgment. The only other reason I think we get such a mention of the building materials, because it seems quite strange in a, uh, uh, such a short account to mention exactly what they used to build. 
The other reason, perhaps, is that Moses, the author who's writing this, might mention the bricks for the benefit of the original readers, to give them a bit of a clue as to what's happening. You see, the Israelites in the wilderness were not fans of grandiose monuments built with bricks. Because actually, they'd been slaves in Egypt, uh, building for Pharaoh with bricks made with straw. You don't get a lot of mention of bricks in the Bible, but there's your other one. uh, Building bricks with straw. So a link is being made here with the Egyptians that they have escaped. And remember, we said last week that the, the reason this is being built is to remind them that leaving Egypt was a good idea and pressing on to the promised land is a good idea. Well, look, these guys are like the Egyptians. They're building with bricks. Well, look what happens to these brick builders. Well, we find out what happens to those brick builders in the second section. God gives them a name. Verses 5 to 11. Let me read them to you again. And the Lord came down to the city, to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language. This is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing they will propose will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and and there confuse their languages, so that they may not understand one another's speech. For the Lord dispersed them from over the face of all the earth, And they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. You see here God gives them a name. And the first name that he gives them, these grandiose builders building these big monuments, is there in verse 5. Children of man. Children of man. Now there are two words for man. Uh, in the Old Testament, there's each and there's Adam. Uh, Adam is the word that's used here. So really what it's saying is they're the children of Adam. And again, think about this in terms of Genesis. Adam is the rebel. Adam is the one who set it all off to go wrong. These are his children building this tower. But Adam also means dust. That's, that's what his name meant because he was made from the dust of the earth. So by saying children of man, it's also children of dust, children of dirt, children of soil. You see, they think of themselves as these master builders out there building skyscrapers. But actually, what does God see them as? Well, they're children of dust. That's how he sees them. You see, they think they're building a tower to heaven. And yet we see in our passage that God has to come down to see what they're doing. Far from storming heaven, actually, God has to sort of come down to earth and have a look at what's going on. It's a bit like a child standing on tiptoes saying, am I as tall as a skyscraper? Or a child trying to jump to the moon. But actually, God has to come down and find them to find what's going on. God isn't intimidated by this. So God goes down to sea. And again, this has echoes in the rest of Genesis. Genesis 18.21. On the back of your sheets again. I will go down to see whether they have uh, done altogether according to the outcry that has come after me. And if not, I will know. That's God speaking. And it's Sodom and Gomorrah that he goes down to see. So God is coming down in, in judgment. It should give us a bit of a clue as to what is about to happen. But God is not scared that they might succeed. I think sometimes we read this passage wrongly and think that God is a bit worried that, you know, if they can do this, they can do anything. But it's more the concerned voice of a father rather than the concerned voice of a rival. It's a father worried about what his children will do to themselves. 
you know, if they can get out of their cot, there's no telling what horrors they will do. Or, or you know, maybe a bit older with children, you know, if they get a car, there's no telling what will happen. It's that sort of an idea. If they build this tower, there'll be no end to their sin and their sinful pride. So it's not that God is worried that they're actually going to succeed and build a tower to heaven. It's actually that he's worried that they will actually get what their pride wants, uh, an ego boost. So God pronounces judgment on them. He will confuse their languages. Now when you think about what God could have done, this is amazingly graceful, isn't it? It's amazing. He could have destroyed them, couldn't he, for what they are doing. But actually what he does is just confuse their languages. There's real grace in his response. And I think we see borne out in history as well, just how much grace was shown. I think when we look at the, how the language is formed, um, we'll see that closely related people seem to have been given languages they could understand between each other. I don't think God broke up husband and wife um, and you know family units. It seems each clan was assigned its own language, but a clan was not enough to carry on the building of the tower. So the building stopped and the clans were scattered. And now it's not just the people that get a name, it's the city that gets a name, Babel. Now in Aramaic, it means gate of God. Again, it sounds quite grandiose, doesn't it? This idea of building up to heaven. But in Hebrew, it means confusion, mix up, mishmash. It was supposed to be a door to heaven. But instead it's just a half-built tower. A folly to be laughed at and ridiculed. And you think, well, so much for human pride and achievement. But that's not the end of the story. That is the end of the Babel story. But the story carries on uh, through the Bible. See, the last thing we see is the end of Babel. And if you've uh, got a Bible in front of you, why not turn up Acts 2? Acts as well. And we'll see what happens in the real end. I'll read it to us. This is after Jesus has died, been raised again, and has ascended into heaven. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues of fire appeared to them, and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men of every nation, under heaven. And at the sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are these not, uh, sorry, are, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, uh, Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speak, telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? So, here we see as the church begins in Acts, the curse of Babel is reversed. That's the first thing we see at the end, the curse of Babel is reversed. 
We see the apostles addressing a crowd almost as diverse as that table of nations we saw last week. Do you know some of the same names came up? Some of them are updated names for what they were called at that time. People gathered from all over the world. And God miraculously unconfuses their languages. The apostles are are able to speak new languages. That's what that word tongues means. It's literally, uh, it's just the old English word for for languages, like a mother tongue. It's the normal word for languages. Um, And it seems like it is something special. That's why we keep the word tongues, because it is something special. People from all over the world hear them in their own language. Now, as an aside, the tongues that we sometimes hear about today, whatever you think about them, are not the tongues of Pentecost. The miracle here is to overcome the language barrier. That's not the case with tongues as you hear about them today. Interestingly, the first modern speakers of tongues thought they were speaking real foreign languages. They thought they were being set apart for global mission to the nations. But unfortunately, their hopes were dashed when they actually got in touch with those nations and people from there and discovered that actually they, they weren't speaking that at all. But their hopes are not dashed here, are they? As God unconfuses the languages. People from all over the world are gathered into the church. Not scattered, but gathered. And that's actually what the church, the word church means. Gathering, as in the opposite of scattering. God is no longer dispersing people over the world. He's gathering people from every tribe, tongue and nation. And the apostles themselves will travel to the ends of the earth, taking the gospel with them and gathering people into the kingdom. So Babel is reversed, but not by human pride and arrogance, but by God's mercy and grace. They're not gathered to rebel against God, but they're gathered in worship to God. And we live the other side of this reversal at Pentecost, don't we? And we continue that work as we take the gospel to people of every tribe, tongue and nation. Here at home, but also all over the world. Even in France, as we were hearing earlier on. We do it as we take the gospel to our friends and neighbours as well. I mean, in the Bible, we are the ends of the earth. But we do it in the same way, don't we? We seek to understand the culture around us. We seek to speak their language. And in doing so, we are reversing Babel in a good way. We're carrying on the work of Pentecost. We do it as we support one another to do that, both inside our church, helping each other reach our friends, and outside our church as we support foreign missionaries like the Delahoids in France and the Macintoshes in Indonesia. They themselves are overcoming those language and cultural barriers that were set up at Babel. So are we joining with that? Are we joining in with the work of undoing Babel in a good way? But there's another way God will reverse Babel, and it lies in the future. Just turn it up, we're not going to read it, but Revelation 18, uh, right at the ends of our Bibles, before all the weights and measures. Revelation 18. If you glance down this chapter, you'll see that Babylon, which is what came out of Babel, here becomes the symbol for all human pride and rebellion against God. It's pictured as a vast godless city, as a blazoned prostitute seducing the earth to rebel against God. But if you look at verse 10, 
we see that she's cast down. They will say, stand far off in fear of her torment and say, alas, alas, you great city, you, uh, you mighty city, Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. What it's saying here is actually the days of human pride are numbered. The days of human arrogance are coming to an end. There is a day when God will come, not in mercy, but in wrath and judgment. Sinful mankind will be cast into eternal judgment. And all human pretensions of power and authority will be brought to nothing. But that's not the end of the story either. There is another city coming. One not built by man, but by God. If you turn over uh, to Revelation 21, you also find it on the back of your notice sheets. Revelation 21, verses 2 and 3. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. You see, here we have another city. Cities aren't bad. But it's not built up by man, trying to get up to God. But do you see, it comes down from God to the earth. It's pictured not as a prostitute, but as a bride, beautifully adorned for her husband, Christ. Man will not storm heaven to enter it, but God will come down to earth and live with us. This is like the anti-Babel, if you like. God's answer to the world of sin. And if we trust in Christ, one day we will join him there. Not as rebels, but as friends. Not as enemies, but as his own people. So what are we to take away from Babel then? Three things. The first thing is beware human pride in any form. It might express itself in building a tower, if you build towers. It might express itself in just trying to live a good life without God. I'm doing very well, thank you. When in fact all we are is children of the dust. It might express itself even in trying to live the Christian life without God. See what I mean? I, I can fight sin myself. I can get by without asking God for help. But in the end, that's doomed for failure too. We actually need God, don't we, even to live our Christian lives. It seems obvious, but we forget. It might express itself in compromise, doing anything to make a name for ourselves. I was struck this week by Tim Farron in the, the news, saying that he was uh, under immense pressure to lie about his belief just to get his party ahead. I imagine that we face similar pressures at work in the week or at home. Just those little things to get ahead. But yeah, they can be disastrous. We must beware human pride in any form. <laughs> Secondly, uh, two or three, beware defining yourself without God. What I mean by that is that our primary identity is in Christ. So before we are man or woman, young or old, rich or poor, father or son, mother or daughter, ugly or pretty, working class or middle class, chiropodist or teacher, we're in Christ. That is our primary identity this morning. That's the name that God has given us if we're trusting in Christ. And our problem again comes when we try and make our own name. When we don't make that the primary focus. Those other things become who we are. But they're not who we are. So it causes us no end of problem. 
are problems. Our identity is defined by God. And if we're a Christian this morning, it's one who is in Christ before anything else. And that's humbling, isn't it? We don't get to choose that, especially in an age where choice is everything. But being in Christ is the safest place in the world. We talk a lot about safe spaces these days, don't we, in, uh, in the media and sort of getting safe spaces for people. Well, here is the safest space in the universe, in Christ. Because in Christ, we don't need to prove ourselves. In Christ, it doesn't matter whether our suit is Armani or Aldi, whether our house is messy or tidy, whether our car is an Audi or an old banger. It doesn't matter. Those are not the things that identify us. They are not our identity. Christ is. So we've got no need to prove ourselves by building towers or buying trinkets to give us worth. Christ gives us worth. He gives us our name. So don't seek a name anywhere else. And then finally, the last thing we take away from Babel is that we are too to take the gospel to the ends of the earth before the end of the world. We're to complete the work begun at Pentecost, taking the gospel to everybody, calling our friends and neighbours to put their trust in Christ. If you really want to be Pentecostal, if you like, tell people around you about Jesus, because that's what they did at Pentecost. And we're to do it before the end of the world, before the door is finally banged shut on Babylon, before there is no longer any opportunity for prideful mankind to humble himself before a merciful God. There is a deadline. God will not wait forever. But for those who do put their trust in Christ now, there is the new Jerusalem to look forward to. Eternity with God and with his people. Not bored to death by people talking about things that we don't really care about. But my offer does still stand afterwards if you want to chat about languages, that's fine. But we won't be bored there as we spend eternity with our Lord Jesus. Because we won't be in proud rebellion against him. Actually, we'll be in humble submission to our king. Joining faithful ones in every tongue, sharing that one passion for Christ. There'll be an end to the confusion that plagues us and an end to the boredom which dogs us. And all glory, wisdom and power will go to God our king, who has brought us together as his people. Well, let's pray that we would be involved in those things. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you that not only did you cause Babel, uh, Father, but you undid it at Pentecost. Father, thank you that the gospel is going out to the ends of the earth. And Father, we pray that you'd help us play our small part uh, in that as we take the gospel to our friends and neighbours, as we support people uh, who are taking the gospel uh, out to the ends of the earth. And Father, pray that we would beware of the sins of Babel. Father, pray that we would not um, seek a name for ourselves, but Father, would accept the one that you have given us. And Father, pray that we be thankful that you treat us as sons and you call us your friends. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.